This morning we have a special guest choir with us to continue making us remember that. So I want to introduce you to the Mississippi Mass Choir. Have any of you ever heard the Mississippi Mass Choir? Wow, y'all need to do a little Googling. They've been around 40 plus years. They're world renowned. And uh, I'd like for you to feel free to put your hands together and sway in your seats as we listen to the Mississippi Mass Choir. Hit it. <clears throat> talking about. <clears throat> Kevin is so boring compared to that. <laughs> Maybe Kevin could uh, work on that. <laughs> the Mississippi Mass Choir gets it. There's no one like him. That's exactly what Isaiah tells us this morning in chapter 49 and chapter 50. So if you don't remember anything, you can remember there is no one like him. Amen? Google Mississippi Mass Choir. You'll enjoy yourself. I had a great time this weekend listening to them over and over. Turn with me to chapter 49. If you have your notes, I want to encourage you to get those out and take notes, not because I'm speaking, but because you need to review. Chapter 49. Let me read verses 1 through 7 to us. <clears throat> Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. And he made me a polished arrow, and the quiver he hid me away. And he said to me, You are my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my right, yet surely my right is with the Lord, and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, He he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant, to raise up the tribes of Jacob, and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, and the Holy One, to one deeply despised 
marred by the nation, the servant of rulers, kings shall see and rise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. So the servant here that is spoken of is the Messiah. It is Christ. And the first thing he says here is that the servant declares his calling and his mission in these first seven verses and even 13 verses. There are four servant songs or Messiah songs in the book of Isaiah. Two of them are in our passage this morning. That's why it really is all about Christ and there's no one like him. In verse 1, if you'll look at verse 1, I'm going to walk you through these verses to set the table for the rest of the passage. Verse 1, the servant himself speaks. He says, listen to me. The servant speaking, listen to my words and obey my words. His audience are the coastlands. And we've looked at that before. That means all the people of the earth from the father's corners of the earth, from all the nations of the earth, from all the races of the earth, from all the different tongues of the earth. He's speaking to them. He says, you Gentiles from afar, I am calling you to do what Israel did not do. And that is to obey me. 1B, he gives this prophetic call from the Lord, a call to his mission, the purpose for which he was born, the purpose for which he was named in his mother's womb. He's speaking of himself. And then in verse 2, it shows us that this Messiah, this servant is unlike Cyrus. Remember Cyrus a few chapters ago? Cyrus was a Messiah type that was going to be a physical deliverer of his people uh, the Jews from the captivity of Babylon where the Messiah is going to deliver his people spiritually. But this one, this servant is unlike Cyrus. This deliverer, the servant, will conquer not by the sword but the power of his word, verse 2 tells us. It tells us that the Messiah's weapons are his own tongue. That same tongue that spoke and all that we see was created. Hebrews 4.12 tells us of this sword that was in the servant's mouth. The sword, the word of God, is a two-edged sword. A dividing instrument that goes deep into the heart. It divides to salvation under conviction. And it divides to judgment if your heart does not turn. That's why later in Hebrews, the writer says, when you hear the word of God, do not harden your heart. He also speaks of himself as a polished arrow. This represents precision and power that he can go and do as he please and what he pleases. Isaiah is letting us know that Cyrus's weapons Pale in comparison to the servants. And then in verse 3, God the Father speaks on behalf of the servant. It says we see uh, in verse 3, verse 49, where it says, And he said to me, You are my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. We see over and over in the New Testament that the Messiah submits completely to the will of the Father, to the one who sent me. In John 17, in the high priestly prayer, Jesus says this about himself. 
I have done everything. I have accomplished everything that the Father wanted me to accomplish. He did it all. Finished it. Every servant of the Lord, from Genesis to Revelation and all through history, has fallen short. They've all had flaws. This servant does not have flaws. He is the perfect one. He served the Father perfectly in every way. And at verse 30, I mean not verse 33, but year 33, he was done. And he accomplished it all. And then he uses this phrase, you are my servant Israel. Here's what he means by that. Israel was to be God's son. Exodus 4.22. You can look that up later. Tells us that. And Israel was called, we know, Genesis 3.15 says, to be a light among the what? Nations. To be a blessing to the nations. But Israel failed miserably. Failed to live up to the purpose and standard of being God's son. So the servant comes now as the true Israel. The son who will obey perfectly where Adam and Israel failed. So with Israel's failure, God does not wipe away the Jewish nation. He simply brings us this ideal Israel in the servant, in the Messiah. Where Israel failed in temptation as they wandered through the desert for 40 years, this servant obeyed perfectly when in temptation when he was in the desert for 40 days. And it's why those have put their trust in this servant. It's why we are called, God's people are called the true Israel. Not by ethnic Jewish blood, but by placing our trust in the blood of this servant. And then he uses this phrase in verse 3. He says, I will be glorified. He's speaking there that the glory of God in creation is in no comparison to how this servant will glorify the Father. Jesus literally put the Father on display the way creation never could. That beautiful sunset that I see on your Facebook post throughout the week here in Tennessee this time of year cannot do for us what Jesus does for us in revealing the Father with great clarity. And then in verse 4, the servant speaks again. There's a shift here from an emotion from glory to discouragement. And he talks about how he's labored in vain and it's a discouraged tone here. We need to go back and think of Jesus' life. He poured himself out. And just at first glance, at first glance, his mission did not seem to be successful. It seemed to be a failure. We know he came to his own and his own received him what? Not. We know he is rejected by the religious leaders. And his own people called for his crucifixion. That's why throughout scripture he was called the man of sorrows. One writer put it this way. He said, the temptation to despair hovered over Jesus his entire life. But unlike historic Israel, he did not turn away from God in cynical unbelief. But look what sustains him in the latter part of verse 4b. We see the key for him and for us to persevere in the midst of discouragement. 
He says, yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense or my reward is with the Father. He says, my justice is with Yahweh. He leaves the results. This servant, the Messiah, leaves the results with God and begins to find courage and perseverance to obey perfectly and be faithful to his calling. And in doing so, we know the end result that he did accomplish all that the Father set him to do. This is the picture for you and I that Jesus, the servant, spoken here throughout the scripture. He is the model for trusting in the Father when it looks like all of our efforts in life and ministry have failed or are futile. He doesn't look to the external results. There weren't many. To be real honest. He leaves the results to God. And he knows that God is his vindicator and his rewarder. Think back. 11 followers after three and a half years of ministry. At his crucifixion, there were 120 gathered in a room. All the miracles... Where were those 5,000 people that he fed? That's what I want to know. And then in the book of Acts, it explodes. Millions, billions since then. Did the father vindicate him? Yeah. That's why you and I are sitting here. And then in verse 5 and 6, the servant speaks again about his mission. He's now reinvigorated since... Since trusting and entrusting himself to the Father, his mood changes again. The servant is going to regather, he says, Israel back to God. And he will be a light to the nations. He'll be a salvation to the ends of the earth. One writer said, Israel has light but needs restoration. While the Gentiles need both light and salvation. And then in verse 6, he says it's a small thing to, be, to bring Israel back, but the greater thing is I'm going to include the whole world in my salvation. Literally, in verse 6, it reads in the Hebrew, I give you as a light to the Gentiles to be my Yeshua, my Jesus, to the ends of the earth. So this servant is both the agent to communicate salvation and also the one in which salvation is found. He's also the light. He is a light, but he's also the light. And in verse 7, the point here is that Christ approaches us not like a Cyrus fuming with rage, cracking the whip, but he empties himself and approaches us as a servant. He is a servant, but he's not above servanthood. And in this servanthood, because there's no one like him, it says in verse 7, the rulers of the earth, the princes of the earth, those in power of the earth, they will both stand up and they will both fall down and worship him. Whether it's here or hereafter. And then verses 8 through 13, as we set this table for the rest of the passage, Isaiah is speaking, if you would, with a backdrop, or backdrop, that's back, right? With a backdrop of Cyrus liberating the Jews in exile from Babylon. But his prophetic eye looks over the horizon, if you would. And he discerns 
that Cyrus's liberation, he discerns that Cyrus's liberation in how Jesus saves us today. And he puts those two together here. He uses this phrase in verse 8. In a time of favor I have answered you. In a day of salvation I have helped you. This is the year of jubilee kind of language. The year of jubilee, you may, uh, may not remember, it's called the year of redemption. Where every 50 years... People's debts were forgiven. If you had enslaved yourself to a person to pay off debts, was automatically forgiven. It was a time of anticipation. It was a long ways away, but it was also a short time away. And the servant's mission here was to inaugurate and declare a day of forgiveness. That's the kind of language he's speaking of, not a day of condemnation. The people of God we know have violated, and later on in verse 8 it speaks of this covenant the people of God have violated the covenant between them and God, but God promises a new covenant, a better covenant. And Jeremiah speaks to that when he says what? I will write the laws, my laws, on your heart and put my spirit within you. It is the blood of this servant, the blood of Christ, that makes this covenant come alive. I love what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty five. He says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Verse 12 of this passage tells us again, it's for the whole world. So salvation for the whole world, verse 13, tells us has only one conclusion. Worldwide redemption calls for cosmic celebration. Now folks, that's a servant song. There's no one like him. It begins to unpack who Christ is, who the servant is, why he came, how he was faithful to his calling, how he followed through, how he didn't fall to discouragement that hovered over him his whole life. He is unlike us. That's verses 1 through 13. Now, in verse 14, as we see that clearly, you would think that the people of God would respond with, let's roll, Right? And they don't. Hmm. Their response that we're going to read in a minute in verse 14 tells us what they were thinking. They're thinking, you got to be kidding me. The last thing we need while we are in captivity is some pie in the sky theology. Our life is horrible. How can we do verse 13 and sing the very praises of God? Well, Isaiah 49, 14 through 25 is written to address that thought from the people of God. Look at verse 14. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. After the servant song, after the greatest news ever, that was the people of God's response in a statement. <laughs> My God has forsaken me and has forgotten me. When I read that this week, I thought to myself, the Bible is so dadgum realistic. Is it not? <laughs> if I was writing the Bible, I wouldn't have put that in there. But I'm not writing the Bible, just so you know. 
The Bible deals with real human problems. Israel looks around in, while in captivity under foreign land with a foreign language. There's no temple to worship in. They're in captivity. Jerusalem's destroyed. The only memories of Jerusalem they have, it was going up in smoke and dead bodies were laying around. And if you don't believe me, write down your notes, Lamentations. Read those five chapters and you will see what they, were, what they remembered and the pain they experienced. And they're saying here, God has abandoned me. God has abandoned us. And look, there's nothing worse than being abandoned. Emotionally, psychologically, and even physically. Look, I remember, I actually abandoned my wife one time. And the kids freaked out, and she did too. We're heading to Colorado. We stop off in a rest stop in the middle of nowhere, Oklahoma probably. There's nothing out there. I get out to use the bathroom. I come back, jump in, and the boys are in the back. They're small, and they're reading or playing with stuff, laying around, and we take off. And you know, when you get on that highway, it's about 10 miles to the turnaround. And we don't have cell phones at the time. And about five miles down the road, I think it was Josh said, where's mom? <laughs> <clears throat> and I thought, I quit playing with me. And they're like, no, mama ain't here. And they start pulling blankets up and looking in the big van and mama ain't there. I don't have a phone. I don't know where mama is, but she ain't in the van. Come to find out, she had jumped out too to use the bathroom, but I didn't know that. So it took about 25 minutes for us to get back to her and she was like. <laughs> the boys were screaming, we left mama. Man, it's hard stuff here. The people of Israel, like us, they often judge the circumstances by their own feeble senses with questions like, why? And where are you? And how could you, God? Verse 14 tells us that you and I are not alone in our feelings and thoughts. If verses like these were not in the Word of God, we might think we're the weird ones. When we are in pain, we can tend to think that God has forgotten us and forsaken us. But you and I know we've seen in the word of God and in their own life a thousand times God be true to his promises. And yet, at the next crisis in our life, we say, Lord, you have forgotten us. Welcome to the human race. So these are real feelings from the people of God. If you look up in your Bibles and do a complete search of the words forsaken and forgotten, 95% of the time they're about us forgetting and forsaking God, not him forgetting us. We're the ones with short memories and a short loyalty. We're so easily recast, we so easily recast God into our own image and project upon him our own thinking as if he's like us, but he's not like us and there's no one like him. And as beautiful a gift as our feelings are, and I want to embrace all of that, at some point for me and for you, the word of God must override and ultimately transform our feelings with the truth of who he is. And at the top 
of all the truths of who he is must be this stake in the ground, this piece of concrete that never moves. And that is God, if you know Christ, will never forget you and never forsake you. Ever. He is with you. He is in you. He is committed to you. He knows you. He's walking with you. He's there right here all the time. And then verse 15 and 16 shows us that as powerful as any two verses in all the scripture. So read with me verse 15. Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb, this is God's response to their statement. Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hand. Your walls are continually before me. So here's what happens. God corrects his people with two of the most tender responses in all the Bible. And here God uses the deepest human attachment known to human beings, a nursing child with the mom. So the mom has a child, her milk comes in, the baby cries, and the mom feeds it. How can the mother forget? She can't. Every time that baby cries and she feels the fullness of her milk, she remembers that child. And even if she's sleeping like my wife would be at night some and the baby would cry, I would wake her up and remind her, honey, <laughs> the baby needs you. I cannot help him. <laughs> this is certainly the overall human experience. 99.99% of every true of every mother would never forget her nursing child. But then he goes, father said, but even, even these even if a mom may forget, even if a mom is negligent to her nursing child, he says, I'm better than that mom. I will never forget you. God loves you if you're in Christ more than your own mother. The Lord's love for his people transcends any earthly love. And here's mine and your problem. We don't work that in us enough. We don't preach that to us enough. We don't rehearse that enough. We don't memorize that enough. We don't chew on that enough. And so we easily forget when circumstances come upon us and we say, God, where are you? You have forsaken and forgotten me. And then verse 16 takes it to another level. He uses this phrase, that we are engraving, <laughs> engraving, he's engraving us on the palms of his hand. Here's what Spurgeon says about that. He says, we are rebels written upon the palm of the hand of God. All of you, I have engraven thee. See the wholeness in this? You have engraved, he has engraved thy person, thy image, thy circumstances, thy sins, thy weaknesses, thy warts, thy wants. I have put it all here. Will you ever again say that God has forgotten you? This is meant to melt and move our hearts toward God. If you're at the store and your wife calls, 
Or your husband calls and says, will you pick up this and you have a pen? Where do you write it? Right there. But it's all of us. Not just our names. So here's what happens here. 750 years before Jesus is born, he tells us, Jesus tells us to be on the lookout for how his hands will declare his great love for us. John 20, 27 says, Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands? Reach out your hand and put it in my side and stop doubting and believe. The rest of the chapter heaps assurance upon assurance about God's endless love. Even to those who are slow to believe. And because that great love is found in the servant... He says in the rest of that chapter that his church will continue to expand the whole world over. Well, we know that to be true today. And then lastly, the servant declares his obedience and his suffering. Look at chapter uh, 50 verses 1 and 2. Thus says the Lord, where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or which of my creditors is to whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities you were sold, and for your transgressions your mother was sent away. Why, when I came, was there no man? Why, when I called, was there no one to answer? Is my hand shortened that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Behold... By my rebuke, I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a desert. Their fish stink for lack of water and die of thirst. Here, God continues to challenge his exiled people to really consider what they are saying. When it comes to their thoughts of him abandoning and forsaking them. Yes, they feel abandoned. Just because they feel abandoned doesn't mean they are. He says, you've not been abandoned. I have a plan for you. I have a covenant with you. But you have been disciplined. Listen to the words here. Pull up your mother's divorce certificate, the servant says. Pull it out of the file. Was it my failure as a husband that ruined our marriage? That's God's question to them. The servant's question. Is it really fair for you to keep blaming me for your captivity in Babylon? Let's put in plain language. He says, you say you feel like property that has been sold off to my creditors. I don't have creditors. I owe no one nothing. He is saying their exile is not my fault. It's your fault. Israel. It's for your own transgressions. You blew your own leg off. Not me. I know it's true in my life. I know it's true in your life. Many times our lives are falling apart because of us. If we're honest, God has been an add-on to our life. Not our all in all. We've held on to him like a good luck charm instead of staking our very lives upon him. 
We've honestly lived as we've pleased for all these years and then sang about him on Sunday morning. I grew up in a church like that. I know it. I smell it. Paul speaks to this in Galatians 6. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, he will also what? Reap. If he sows seeds of righteousness, he'll reap thereof. If he sows seeds of destruction, he'll reap thereof. God continues to press here in verse 2 to his people over and over. He says, he says in verse 2, basically, I've engaged you with great help, offers of help, and great warnings. I've extended my hand to you, but you did not grab it. He asked a rhetorical question. Was my hand too short? Do I not have the power to help you? I tried. The point here is that God has been and is always willing to help us if we'll quit playing games with him and finding fault with him. The great picture in Luke 15 is a father, the father God, standing at the end of the road and his son, the prodigal, has gone off the cliff and he walks to the end of the road day after day waiting for him. No strings attached. Just come home. And we see that picture of how the father responded when he came home. He said, my son was lost and now he's found. And we kill the fatted calf and we throw a party. That's the picture here, but they did not come home. God is waiting for us to step toward him with heartfelt repentance and belief. To let go of ourselves, quit passing the buck, and grab hold of him and let him lead you through this wilderness called life. I don't have time to read verses 4 through 9, but it is the third servant song. And we're going to get more into this later in chapter 53 in terms of his perfect obedience and suffering. But I want you to read it on your own, okay? You can read five verses this week. <laughs> this servant song is about listening. The nation of Israel and us, we have a problem with listening. <laughs> but the servant of the Lord does not. It says there in that passage that morning after morning... The Father God awakes the servant and teaches the servant and the servant has a listening ear. Always in perfect tune with the Father as a learner to hear from him. Verse 5 tells us, and that's a great picture for us, the people of God every morning awaking to the very words of God to listen and to learn. Verse 5 tells us that the servant obeyed perfectly. Verse 6 tells us he suffered in perfect obedience from the ones that he made. They plucked his beard, they struck his back, they spit in his face, and he walked through it perfectly. 
Verse 7 tells us that he ultimately he entrusted himself perfectly to his father, knowing that his father would what? Vindicate him. I'm reminded of Luke 9.51. It says, when the time had come, he set his face toward Jerusalem for the last week of his life. He turned his face. He never turned back. And this passage in 4 through 9 said he set his face like flint to his mission. I'm reminded here of 1 Peter 2.23. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But continued to entrust himself to him who judges justly. That's the picture of verses 4 through 9. And then in 10 and 11, as we... Uh, close up. He gives two choices. <laughs> he says there's really only two. There always has been, always will be two choices. Follow Christ or follow ourselves. Verse 10. Isaiah challenges us to follow the servant with the same trust that the servant follows the father. That's the model. When nothing in our lives makes sense, there's no visible path forward. And I know there's people in this room with pain, and I know I have been in pain. What should we do? Isaiah says here, put a stake in the ground on who God is based on what his word says about him. One writer said, even in dark seasons, there's more light with Christ than walking in the shining light of trusting in ourselves. And then verse 11 gives the other side of the choice. Trust in yourself. It says people who light their own fires. People who believe in themselves. People who trust in their own light. Their own ideas. They think, why listen to Christ when there are easier ways to live? These folks in their own mind and hearts don't think Christ can be counted on when it matters most. Monty said it last week. There's a way that seems right to a man, but it's in his death. Book of Judges says, and men and women did what was right in their own eyes. Those are the two conclusions that Isaiah leaves us with after Describing the person that is no one like. This past week, last Sunday, I stood before you and I asked you to pray for Wayne Armstrong. On Monday night, the doctors had put in their charts he had a 30% chance to live. There's been four people at Vanderbilt in the last year in his condition. Two of them are dead, one is blind, and Wayne is at home as normal as can be. Okay? But here's what Kim Armstrong texted me on Friday. The doctors had said, Wayne has a great will to live. <laughs> Kim said, yeah, whatever, if you know her. She types in her text, here's what I know. God did his thing and he is good. He is in the business of resurrection life. So God showed himself on this side of heaven with saving Wayne's life. And here's the key for us. 
But if it would have gone the other way, God would still have been good and he would have still been in the business of resurrection life. It just would have been on the other side of this life. This is a woman who had real feelings like the people of God, paralyzed with fear, nauseated with terror that her 53-year-old husband would die and her boys would still be without a death. And yet, through those feelings, she put the word of God and she came away with truth that comforted her soul. That's what Isaiah is saying to us. When you look at the servant and there's no one like him, and life is dark and life is hard, sink your teeth into who he is Quit playing games with him. His hand is not short. He is willing to help. And in that you get to know him. Like unbelievably. And there's a tamping down of those emotions. That lets us breathe. And walk with him in perseverance. And trust the father. Like the servant trusted the father. Take a minute to ask the question, so what, this morning. To me, there's so many so what's in there, depending on what's going on in your life. So take a minute to ask, what are the next right steps for me when I think of the servant that there's no one like?